Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan LaBreeze, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest today is Emma Straub, author of This Time Tomorrow, out now from Riverhead Books. In her fifth novel, Straub, the New York Times bestselling author of The Vacationers and Modern Lovers, among others, takes readers on a journey through time. That's right, it is a time travel novel centering on a New Yorker named Alice Stern, who wakes up after her 40th birthday celebration to discover it is the day of her 16th birthday celebration. In 1996. Again. And what this means, among other things, is that Alice's father, Leonard, a famous sci-fi author with whom she is incredibly close, is young and robust and beaming, making jokes. Unlike the Leonard of 2020, who Alice visits in the hospital every day because he's in a coma. Here's a little bit from Kirkus's starred review of This Time Tomorrow. Straub's novel has echoes of Thornton Wilder's play Our Town. Every prosaic detail of Alice's earlier life is almost unbearably poignant to her, and the chance to spend time with her father is priceless. As she moves through her day, she tries to figure out how to get back to her life as a 40-year-old and whether there's anything she can do in the past to improve her future and save her father's life. As always, Straub creates characters who feel fully alive, exploring the subtleties of their thoughts, feelings, and relationships. It's hard to say more without giving away the delightful surprises of the book's second half, but be assured that Straub's time travel shenanigans are up there with Kate Atkinson's Life After Life and the TV show Russian Doll. Emma Straub is the author of five novels and one short story collection, and she and her husband are the owners of the fabulous independent bookstore Books Are Magic in Brooklyn, New York. After the break... Emma Straub joins us from Brooklyn to discuss This Time Tomorrow. This message is brought to you by Daniel James, author of the Hourglass series, who brings us the latest installment, The Ferryman's Toll. James's first Hourglass novel introduced readers to ordinary guy and aspiring comic book artist Clyde Williams and his friend Kevin Carpenter. The two hang out regularly despite Kev being dead. The fact that the pals commune so easily brings them to the attention of the paranormal agency known as Hourglass. They're both brought on board as operatives, but in The Ferryman's Toll, Hourglass assets are being targeted by a horrifically enhanced killer called the Hangman, the latest madman produced by the Cairnwood Society. It's up to Clyde and his team to find out their dark methods and shut them down before Cairnwood can amass an army of nightmare killers to wreak havoc on the world. In this starred review, Kirkus Reviews calls The Ferryman's Toll, quote, a fast-paced, richly imagined, gritty tale of modern-day good versus evil, end quote. Readers can find The Ferryman's Toll on Amazon in Kindle, paperback, and hardcover. Welcome, Emma, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am absolutely thrilled to be able to discuss this time tomorrow. Now, this is your sixth book, fifth novel, yes? Yeah, which sure, it sure (laughs) sounds like a lot. (laughs) Yeah, prolific. I'm impressed. And this is 
the first of your work, um, I've had the privilege of reading, but I assure you it will not be the last. I'm your fan. Um, if you would, for the benefit of our listeners, um, what's this one about and how did this novel come to be? Sure. So this time tomorrow is, well, it's my autobiographical time travel novel. Ooh. <laughs> it's about a woman on the cusp of turning 40 whose her life isn't, it's not terrible, but it's also not great. You know, her work life isn't totally satisfying. Her romantic life isn't totally satisfying. And her father, who is a science fiction novelist is dying and she goes out with her best friend for dinner for her 40th birthday gets too drunk and wakes up the next morning and it's her 16th birthday and it really just goes from there (laughs) okay so i was thrilled to hear you say autobiographical so what was the inspiration for this story (laughs) okay so alice stern the protagonist of my novel she and i are not totally the same right at all totally it's like she grew up on 95th street and i grew up on 85th street whoa that is a 10 block difference and her her father leonard stern is a is a science fiction novelist and my father peter straub is a is a horror horror novelist um and that's very different also and she just turned 40 and now now I just turned 42. So like you can see the differences are enormous. I definitely. Yeah, and I mean really, you know, the that is all, you know, like my that's my jokey answer of course, but it's also very true. <laughs> and I started writing this book in the fall of 2020 when I had childcare again for the first time. March. And, you know, I'd been home with my two small boys who are extremely loud and chaotic humans. (laughs) My husband had been at our bookstore all the time and shipping things out. And yeah, I really, I hadn't had a moment to breathe, let alone write. And my father had been, had spent several months in the hospital or he was, he was still in the hospital when I, when I started working on this book. Yeah. And I just didn't know, I didn't know what to do really. (laughs) And so I just, I gave myself permission to do this thing that I had never, ever, ever done in my life, which was go straight for it. Just like not, I wasn't going to couch it in something else. It wasn't going to be a metaphor. It wasn't going to be, I don't know. I wasn't going to sort of sidle up next to the feelings I was having and and like think about a different way to tell it. I was just going to just really not be scared of describing the feelings that I was having, which was that I was really afraid that my father was dying. He was dying and I was going to fix it for all of us. <laughs> well, yeah. for me and for him, you know, I was going to fix it. I was going to go back in time and see what I could do. And so that's what I did. Wow. Thank you for being so candid in that answer. And I mean, Achievement unlocked in this novel. This actually this brings up some. This brings up one of my favorite periodic questions. I don't. I ask like kind of a permutation of this sometimes, but not frequently. But in the spirit of you know the content of the book, 
Um, if we were to go back to high school and to the idea of yearbook superlatives, like if you gave one in the yearbook to this novel, what what would it be? This, this is your blankiest novel, most likely to blank novel that you've written. <laughs> I mean, most likely to make you cry. For that, sure. Well, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think my galley actually came with a box of tissues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Riverhead, yeah. my public Riverhead is very, very good at making cute things. Yeah. You know who did not get a box of This Time Tomorrow branded tissues is me. I was <gasps> like, what, what does a girl have to do to get a <laughs> box of tissues that matches her book jacket? I don't know. I'm going, I'm going into their office later today. So maybe I'll root around in the supply closet and see if there are any more. This is your day. So um, I really like the part of your answer that was like, you know, okay, you're going to go in and you're going to fix it through fiction. And I think that this is really fascinating because, you know, time-worn time travel tropes aside, which I'd love to revisit because I've got my favorites too, but this idea of perfecting or correcting your own life, like that's, I think is pretty inherent in, you know, a lot of time travel fiction. And I like, I kind of in this way was extrapolating from that in your experience of being a novelist is that kind of the gig, you know, like what you put your people through, your characters, is it like a cosmic do-over rooted in history <laughs> or at the very least some emotional truth? Um, I, I, emotionally, maybe, yeah. maybe sometimes. Mm. Um, although I think, I think for me, and this is true in all my books, though not as like, uh, not in as much of like a direct sort of one-to-one ratio kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> is that I I never write anything because I understand what it is and want to tell someone about what I think. Like it's never yeah. to prove a, a, a certain thesis or point. Um, it's always to process and discover and experience. And that was certainly true with this book that I... I mean, my, what my therapist calls it, <laughs> well, it was so fun. It was so fun for me to talk about this book with my therapist because she was my therapist the whole time I was writing it. So like, I was like, oh, wait till you see all of this again. Um, <laughs> but it, what she called it, what she described what I'd been going through was pre grieving. Mm. I think that this book is an artifact of that and it's it's like the 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 byproduct of that because that's I mean it it's not that I was like I mean obviously I didn't think that I was going to solve anything but I did think that I could really just pay attention to it all and really just like just sort of devote myself to like sticking with it, you know, like I am, I am an extremely like, you know, like busy octopus kind of person. Like I, (laughs) I find it very, very hard to do one thing at a time always, you know, which is fine because I like write novels and I own a bookstore and I have two children and a husband and parents and friends, you know, so it's like, there's always, there's always more than one thing for me to do. But writing this book was by far, are the most satisfying and concentrated time I have ever spent writing. I think because I just really wanted to be there, (laughs) you know, like I just really, I really wanted to be sitting at, you know, my childhood kitchen table with my dad smoking cigarettes and watching Jeopardy. Yeah. 
this this is absolutely fascinating to me on a lot of levels. I mean, one thing that I sometimes mention as well is that I, before I was a journalist, I worked in the funeral industry. Mm. Right. So to hear you say this like idea of pre-grieving, it really lit me up because it made me realize in the moment that like grief, like it's, it's work that takes time. Yeah. So whether you front load that or you're getting it on the back (laughs) end, you know, like, it's like, it is, it is the size that it's going to be. And, you know, you do, you know, working in the funeral industry, you see all types of families going through this, you know, like momentous experience that like forever changes everybody's lives. And some people do, you know, like sometimes when you'll go to somebody's house, you know, representing a funeral home, the family will be actually having a pizza party and be like, do you want some pizza? Grandpa was 98. We were so happy. He was great. He was our patriarch. We love him. We love pizza. And like, (laughs) they're not looking for you as the funeral home person to come in with, you know, like your head hanging low and, you know, like somber. So they're looking for you to like plug in at their frequency. Yeah. And it's like, I think that pre-grieving you know, does that work, you know, especially when you can say one of your loved ones lived a long and fulfilling and successful life. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and of course, <laughs> you know, so I, one, someone who I've been talking to a lot recently, who I, I just love to pieces is the writer Ada Calhoun, Ooh. who has a book coming out shortly called also a poet that is yeah. a memoir about her father. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Who is a, you know, famous art critic. And it's, it's in many ways, it's like a sibling to, to my book in lots of, in lots of ways. Um, And one of them is that both of our fathers are still alive. You know, my dad came out of the hospital at the end of November in 2020, after having been there for about four months, he and I had talked about what I was doing when he was able I mean, we talked a lot about writing and ourselves and our books and our family. And, you know, I mean, we, we had talked a lot, but in the sort of broken way that life exists in a hospital. Yeah. And, and so he knew, he knew that I was writing, but, but I don't know if he was like just how aware he was really of what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was really something to to give it to him when I was finished. And the first thing he said to me was, what page do I die on? <laughs> <laughs> That's good dialogue. He's very good. He's good. <laughs> is, is your mom literary as well? She's very literary. She, yeah. uh, My mom ran a childhood early literacy program for about 20 years and now is working on children's books, right? Writing children's books. She and I have a picture book that we wrote together. Yeah. And she, she's really devoting herself to that, which is wonderful. So yes, I mean, we, as a family, we, we all very, very much love books more than anything else. Very, very cool. Um, Is her influence present in uh, the guided journal? Reading is magic. Oh, yeah. I mean, she, you know, that I really, I really didn't have much to do with. I wrote the foreword for it. And I helped facilitate getting more booksellers involved. Mm. But yes, I I mean, my mom, you know, one of the things that I, there are a lot of ways in which I feel like a totally delinquent, inadequate parent, you know, 
every day, all day long, but I know that I have done well. And it's completely because of my mother is that my kids know how important books are and not just, not like adult books, but children's books. Um, And that is totally from my mother who Mm. always has such a deep respect and love for children's books. It's kind of interesting and awesome. And to kind of like segue back into the book here, there's a moment in this book, you know, um, with, again, like you never want to give away too much of a (laughs) well-plotted story like this because you want readers to encounter it on their own terms. But we do know there's time travel. And when Alice first goes back, there is an early observation, super poignant that she makes that it's like, oh, you know, like my dad is young, he's healthy, robust. And he wasn't that old. Like when I was 16, he seemed like this adult guy. But now that I'm on the cusp of 40, or I just turned 40, like he wasn't, he wasn't even that old. Like children and parents are kind of companions, you know, in a lifespan. Yeah. I mean, and that, that kind of thing, like my parents were on the older, on the older side, especially for the time when they had me. My mom was 35 when she had me. My dad was 36, I guess. And I was 33 and 35 when I had my kids. So like, I, I feel like we're, we're, we're sort of as far apart as parents and children get. Yeah. But even so, yeah, I mean, writing this book really, writing this book and also, you know, being a parent of kids who are getting older really did make me <laughs> realize again, like, this is nothing. The difference between us is nothing. Like we're, we're, we're on this trip together. Like we are, yeah, we are, we are companions. We're not, you know, I, I always thought of my parents as being so, so many rungs above, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, but they're not, they're just one rung. That's it. Right. It's not that long ago, despite the fact that somebody recently told me that a novel set in 1990s was historical fiction. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I'm going out on the fire escape is how I felt. I was like, wow. Um, What I love, uh, you made me fall in love with the 90s again. And another thing is you made me fall in love with New York City again through this book. If we could focus on one or the other for the end of our conversation, which would you rather talk about, the 90s or New York City? I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's hard because it's, it's so much the same to me. Let's do both. Yeah. Let's talk about 90s New York City. Yeah, yeah, yes, let's. You know, in addition to to thinking about my dad and my dad when I was a teenager while writing this book, I also had the fun of just imagining my 16-year-old self and where I was going and what I was doing and the the stores that I was walking by and the restaurants and the bodegas and like all of the, all of New York city that, that was my, was the backdrop to my, to my childhood and my youth. And so much of it is gone. (laughs) Yeah. In the book, there were certain things that I found I couldn't part with. <laughs> like I couldn't, maybe I'll get in, in trouble with some uh New York City fact checkers for this, but you know there there are a lot of things that I let go, you know, I like coffee shops or whatever that yeah. that were there when I was a teenager or stores or whatever that are gone 
and I, you know, have Alice look at them and, and remember, you know, like the halcyon days of when the gap and the banana Republic run the corner of 86 and Broadway staring Aww. together, um, you know, that kind of stuff obviously yeah. it doesn't really matter to me on a profound level. Although I did spend a lot of time at that gap, Fair enough. but Jackson hole, which was the hamburger restaurant on my parents' corner, for my whole life and, you know, down the street from the house that my parents lived in for 30 years, it had closed when I was writing this book, but I didn't close it. (laughs) I kept it open because I thought, well, who cares? You know, the, the pandemic also is not in this book. And my, my feeling is there has to be at least one timeline, one perfect, beautiful timeline where there's no COVID and Jackson Hole lives forever. That, oh. that seemed like I was willing to 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 have that be my reality. It's a beautiful one. Um, do we have just a few minutes to talk about, there are a lot of special places in that time in this book. Can we talk about Commander Walk? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I grew up on the Upper West Side and I spent a lot of time in a lot of really, you know, different apartment buildings and brownstones. You know, my friends lived all over the place and Pomander Walk is a, is a place that I don't know if I even knew that it existed then, but it, it's one of my favorite kind of New York City streets, like Patch and Place in the West Village where I lived for a couple of years in my 20s. But Pomander Walk is, is one block long it's sort of in the middle of the block um, between 94th and 95th Street, between Broadway and West End. And it's it's, these, it's this tiny, magical place behind a gate with these little sort of gingerbread, tiny little houses all scrunched up together. And I just, I was looking for someplace magical. And to me, there's nothing, there's nothing more magical than a hidden place, a hidden small place inside this giant bustling city. And I just thought if there's a place on the Upper West Side, that's a little bit magic. It's there. It's there. It just, it just looks and feels that way to me. And so that's where I put Leonard and Alice. What was, was it a joy to write this book or what? Because so much goodness shines through every page. It's a page turner, impossibly, because it has so it's packed with so much rich detail as well and so many surprises. Was it a pleasure to write this or what? Yeah, I mean it, it was it was absolutely a pleasure. It was absolutely a pleasure to write this book. It was the escape that I needed. You know, I I I don't know. I mean, some some writers think about their readers and their audience more than others. I can't say that I've ever like, (laughs) forgive me readers. I can't say that I ever think about readers that much, but this time I really didn't think about them at all. I, I, this was purely for me. I didn't know what Riverhead was going to say. My editor is, is an extremely brilliant woman and she edits all, all kinds of books and it, it wasn't that I thought that she wouldn't be up to it or something, but I was like, is, is, am I allowed to do this? Is this okay? The book that I had under contract with them was a very, was not this book. So I called her one day and I was like, this is what I'm <laughs> And she said, okay. And yeah, it really, I mean, I cried so much. 
I cried so much while writing it, but yeah, it's the most fun I've ever had writing a book for sure. I cried so much reading it, especially at the end, but I have to say it was 100% for sure a joy to read. Emma, I just want to say, you know, my most hospitable question, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about this time tomorrow or any other little thought left lingering after our conversation today? Well, I guess, you know, when I, when I mentioned all the crying, I do, I do also want to just remind people that it's also quite funny, I think. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just like a bummer. It's not a bummer. I swear it's sad, you know, but it's, but it's more bittersweet than, um, than like, uh, than like soul destroying. So even though, even though it, it is likely to make you cry, it's, it's also a good time. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave it at that. Emma Straub, thank you so much for joining me today on Fully Booked. Thanks for having me. That was Emma Straub, author of This Time Tomorrow, published by Riverhead. After the break, we'll ask our editors for their top picks and books for the week. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. This message is brought to you by Monica Garcia-Dougal, author of the self-help book, The Power of Breath. The Power of Breath is a guidebook on meditation that leads you through life's unexpected surprises, losses, and turning points, which make finding a simple and unique meditation practice that much more important. Through meditating, one also achieves clarity, which helps one pursue happiness and create a fuller life. The Power of Breath takes you through the importance of breathwork with basic exercises that will help you forge a path towards self-love, your way. Readers can find The Power of Breath in Kindle, audiobook, and paperback on Amazon. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. We're joined now by our editors with their top picks and books for the week. We have young readers editors Laura Simeon and Manaz Dar, nonfiction editor Eric Liebertrau, and fiction editor Lori Muchnick. Starting with Laura, hello. What have you chosen for us? Hello, Megan. So I've chosen the latest rom-com from Rachel Lynn Solomon. And she writes for adults and teens. And this one's, I would say, YA veering into new adult or anybody who enjoys a good rom-com. And it's called See You Yesterday. It's set in the Seattle area, like I think all or at least most of her books. And it's about Barrett Bloom, who's a freshman at the University of Washington. And she wakes up on the first day of classes and everything just starts to go wrong from that moment. First of all, She thought she had a single because her roommate from Nebraska never showed up, but instead she finds out she's rooming with her nemesis from high school. And then she goes to her first class, which is physics, and she sits down next to this kind of smart, alecky, obnoxious guy who humiliates her in front of the professor. Then she goes to an interview to be on the the university newspaper because the newspaper was her high school passion and she bombs the interview. Um, She's haunted by this sort of whistleblower story she broke about um, student athletes cheating in high school. And instead of everybody being grateful to her, that made her a pariah. She goes to this frat party, sort of going after her roommate, sort of altruistically hoping to look out for her protector, you know, and ends up setting the whole place on fire. She gets locked out of her dorm room. It's just like the worst possible first day of college ever. 
And she wakes up the next morning and it starts all over again. It's like this reset button. She's stuck in this time loop. And she discovers that Miles Kasher Okamoto, who is the boy she'd sat next to, is also stuck in the time loop with her. And they have to go through this journey of, you know, you know how time loop stories work. But anyway, the thing is with, with Solomon, her books are so fresh. Like she she uses rom-com tropes and makes them really fresh and fun and interesting. And you just feel like you're in the hands of this master who's leading you through this great story. She's from the Seattle area and you can really tell, you know, I live here too. And the there's a lot of books set in Seattle where the details don't feel quite right. And, and you can tell she really nails it. Um, and the other thing I love about her books, and this one's no exception, is there's a lot of diversity that's just naturally woven into the story. So I don't want to like run through the whole thing because it'll sound like this laundry list, but she finds a way of, of weaving all these diverse types of characters and life experiences into the story. And this one features two Jewish leads. One of them's also Japanese American and biracial. Um, and it's just, it's just really fun. The voice is really strong. Barrett is engaging. She has a way of putting her foot in her mouth and, um, when she's things are going badly, sometimes she just keeps babbling and makes it even worse. And it's just she's just a very appealing lead. Laura, I'm so glad you recommended that because that is the perfect book for my son and all of his college first year student friends who last summer read One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston, which is sort of the opposite of what you said. It's an adult book sort of shading into YA New Adult. It's about, you know, very young 20s in New York City. And it's got a, you know, it's a romance with a time travel element. Um, and everybody last summer was loving it. And this seems like a perfect um, next read for that audience. And of course, also, it sounds like it would appeal to people who liked Emma Straub's book that Megan just talked about, which also has the time travel element. So I love time travel. So I don't know if it's a little mini trend, but I'm happy. Me too. I know it's one of my favorite premises for a book. And I, I thought the same thing. It's a perfect link to Megan's interview. So. Yeah. And I thought the same thing. And I'm grateful to you for that, Laura. Thank you so much for suggesting See You Yesterday by Rachel Lynn Solomon. Excellent choice. Next, we'll have Manaz's pick. Manaz, what have you chosen for us? Yay, I have got The World Belonged to Us by Jacqueline Woodson, illustrated by Leo Espinoza. This picture book is basically a love letter to uh, Woodson's summers in Brooklyn, where she grew up um, in the 60s and 70s. It is full of days where children run free, full of images of fire hydrants spreading water kids pooling money for ice cream trucks, kids jumping rope, drawing chalk, and totally free of adults. Just, you know, this world where it totally belongs to the kids. It's summer. It is all theirs. And um, there's this beautiful refrain throughout that goes, you know, in, the, in Brooklyn in the summer, not so long ago. I love the images. They really evoke the kind of cartoons of the 60s and 70s with lots of clean lines and solid colors and cultural markers from like the bicycles to the knee socks that really place it in that kind of 60s, 70s uh, setting. The text is pure poetry. And I think often with poetry, there's an assumption that that means a very quiet book, a book for pondering and thinking. Even as an adult, sometimes I find myself falling into that trap. But this one is pure feeling, pure emotion. It's loud, it's boisterous, it demands to be heard. 
our review talks about how it really appeals to the senses. And um, that's a big part of why I love it so much. And I also love the use of color in the text, the way that certain words are highlighted in different colors and the way the text snakes across the page. I also love that this is very much a book that's embedded with nostalgia. And I think that in Kidlet, we're very used to a certain kind of idea of nostalgia. You know, you think of Norman Rockwell images, whiteness, um, suburbia, you know, apple-cheeked kids. But here, um, Woodson is evoking nostalgia for a world that is incredibly diverse. And also, it's not a book that necessarily feels steeped in nostalgia. You know, if you're a kid who doesn't necessarily have a frame of reference, it's not going to be nostalgia-inducing. It's just going to feel real and immediate for you. I think that's what Woodson and Espinosa have pulled off uh, so beautifully. Thank you, Manos. It seems to me, even though they're different illustrators, this book kind of reminded me of um, The Day You Begin and the, what's the other one? That's oh, The Year We Learned to Fly. Mm, yes. Uh, especially in the colors you were talking about. And the, the illustrator cover, colors them in different colors. And, you know, this idea of, like you said, subverting a, a standard idea of nostalgia and featuring a little more diverse cast. Totally. I think those would all be great, um, great read-alikes. And another Brooklyn, of course, even though it's not. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Manaz's mm-hmm. pick for the week is The World Belonged to Us by Jacqueline Woodson, illustrated by Leo Espinoza. Thank you, Manaz, for that choice. Next, we've got nonfiction. Eric, what have you chosen for us? I chose a book called The Puzzler by A.J. Jacobs. The subtitle is One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. Jacobs, of course, has written a bunch of best-selling books, kind of in this immersion journalism vein. Um, our reviewer called him the George Plimpton of thought experiments, which I thought was a good description. And he, you know, he does this experiential journalism, and he he opens a book after he discovered that a New York Times crossword puzzle had a clue about him. So he goes on this pursuit to talk to people who make crosswords and other puzzles, and it's like a really cool, fun exploration of this kind of geeky subculture that I think a lot of us are are steeped in. Um, and there's also a cool thing. There's actually a secret puzzle hidden within the book. And he talks about how he said, I figured I couldn't write a book on puzzles that didn't contain a secret one itself. And the first person who solves it will get $10,000. So it's like an interesting little um, kind of challenge within the book. And I'm not sure if anyone has solved it yet. I'd like to talk to his publisher about it. I think anybody who's into word games, logic puzzles, mazes, crossword puzzles, anything like that, um, this is a really entertaining book and a kind of a great uh, summer beach read too. This one sounds really amazing, Eric. And I think it's definitely one for me as a, a lover of word games. I think what really speaks to me about it is that he uses this love of puzzles as a jumping off point to go on a journey and to meet other people. And I've often thought of crossword puzzles as this very solitary thing where you're just, you do it and then you complete it. And there's no one watching you. Like if you do a sports game where you get cheered on, but I'm seeing that that's kind of changing now with um, the word game Wordle, which has gotten Twitter all abuzz for the past year where everyone, you know, posts how long it took them to win it. And people kind of talk about it without trying to spoil it, you know. So I think that um, it's a good reminder that even these seemingly quiet games can engender a sense of community. Yeah, that's a great point. Really, like you said, a fairly new phenomenon. I got the Wordle in three today, and Eric's pick for the week is The Puzzler, one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life by A.J. Jacobs. Thank you, Eric, for that choice. 
And finally, we have fiction. Lori, what have you chosen for us? I've got a book called Bad Actors by Mick Herron, which is actually the eighth volume in his Slow Horses series, which is um, the basis of the new Apple TV program. Even though Bad Actors is the book I'm technically recommending because it is new, I would really suggest that you go back to the beginning and start with the first book, Slow Horses. Um, This is a really fun series about a bunch of sort of bumbling MI5 agents, the premier spy agency in the United Kingdom. And these are not your John le Carré spies. These are a bunch of people who have been sort of relegated to not the main office by Regent's Park, but a sort of auxiliary office on a trample down street where you have to enter through the back alley, stepping over garbage and probably drunk people and things. You know, this is sort of the way station on the way to trying to force these people to quit without having to fire them. You know, so of course, in every book, there are different, you know, different ways that they get involved in things that the main office doesn't really think they should be involved in. And you realize that one of the the fun things about these books is that all of the, the protagonists, the heroes, the villains, everybody in between, they're pretty much all you know, MI5 spies. They're like, everybody is part of the agency and some of them are good guys and some of them are bad guys. And a lot of it is no matter what the ostensible crime is, a lot of the plot of the books is bureaucratic infighting, which, you know, maybe doesn't sound like the most exciting thing, but Heron just really makes it fun. He's got a really dry and funny tone and just watching these kind of dysfunctional, narcissistic careerist public servants go about trying to stab each other in the back and get ahead. It's really quite entertaining and fun. Laurie, I was so happy to hear there's a new one out because I I discovered the Slough House series when it first came out and I don't remember how, but I wanted to recommend a read alike. This is a series about slightly less bumbling MI5 agents. (laughs) Um, It's the Liz Carlisle series by Stella Remington that starts with at risk. Yeah. She's a real, she was a real, really the head of MI5, right? Yes. Yes. And I was going to say, because I know that you like books about people's professions. Uh So I just have to slip in Open Secret is Stella Remington's memoir about being the first woman head of MI5 and also the first publicly named director. And she talks a lot Mm -hmm. about also being a working mother at a time when, you know, that was maybe less common in in her type of career. Um, You know, of course, women have always been working mothers, but that sort of very public role and and juggling all these things. And um, anyway, it's very enjoyable. Oh, thanks, Laura. That sounds really good. Yeah. Lori's pick for the week is Bad Actors from the Slough House series by Mick Herron. Thank you, Lori, for that choice. Well, that does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you all so much for joining us. Please join us again next week when my guest will be Marie Myungak Lee, author of The Evening Hero, a novel in which a Korean-American doctor is forced into retirement and a confrontation with his past when a secret he's kept about his family surfaces. Kirkus calls it a story filled with as much heartache and healing as it is historical significance. You won't want to miss it, but until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. 
Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.